Good morning. Thank you. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Um, welcome to the course uh, labeled MDL-01. Just a few housekeeping items. There are some uh, glasses and some water in the back of the room for you. In addition, if you are claiming APA credit uh, for today's course, please do not forget to sign out on the blue piece of paper located in the back by the doors. Um, today's course is titled Knowledge Gaps Equal Legal Traps, and our faculty today are Jennifer Bolin and Susan or Sue Kinser, I apologize. Uh, Jennifer is the founder of Legal Side of Pain in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Sue is the president and owner of Medical Practice Partner in Riverview, Florida. Please join me in welcoming our speakers. Good morning, everybody. Since there's two of us that play the bouncing heads, we're going to stay down on the ground level. Is that all right with y'all? I don't think we'll interfere, and uh, usually we can do some entertaining stuff, right? Y'all doing all right? Well, welcome to Vegas. Summer's over, right? Uh, so I'm Jen Bolin. This is my partner, Sue Kinser. I are actually business partners uh, in companies we work together uh, on billing for the laboratories. And this is going in and out. Do you know why it's going in and out? Oh, keep my hand still. All right. Um, so we work together. And this program is new and updated. So if you saw me speak on specimens in order during pain weekend in the spring, We've updated all of this information uh, to make it more uh, uh, current with the litigation going on uh, to drug testing that are coming out. I really wasn't turning my head. One second. Is that better? Okay. So um, we're, those are the disclosures that we have. We're going to look at the drug testing industry through the eyes of recent federal and uh, state indictments charging physicians and others uh, with crimes related to uh, healthcare fraud and, and drug testing. Uh, and some of these cases are pending. And what that means is uh, they haven't been convicted or proven guilty of anything. But the factual patterns that are presented in the indictments, I think, help you understand where some boundaries are, especially in business arrangements. And most of you good people understand those boundaries, but um, it, it really is important to see what the payers are looking at and what the feds are looking at in these cases. So we're gonna go through two kind of extreme examples. We're gonna look to recent updates in uh, drug testing requirements. I don't have all of the state materials in here. It's very hard to uh, teach to a group that's from all over the country. Um, but we have a lot of that stuff that we can talk to off the top of our head. And we'll talk to, um, and for any of you doing, um, who's at X registered in here? Anybody? Okay, great. Well, we're going to talk about the ASAM materials very briefly. So how many uh, prescriber physicians are in the room? All right, great. Uh, anybody that uh, has a laboratory in their office, physician office laboratory, or do drug testing with cups or dips? Great. Do we have any industry representatives in here, people that work with laboratories, uh, for laboratories? Great. Uh, so everybody can learn something. Any payer representatives, folks that work uh, inside commercial or government payers? Uh, well, we're going to cover a lot of different things, and hopefully uh, through this you'll learn some stuff about medical necessity and documentation, because that tends to be the real secret to keeping the payers off your back or surviving through an audit. And both Sue and I uh, do a lot of audit work in this industry. 
And, uh, you know, we kind of, I guess we sort of predicted this stuff would happen a couple years ago when we first started looking at drug testing and pain management and addiction. And we said that a lot of folks were headed for trouble and headed for heavy duty audits. And that's exactly what's happened. There's hundreds of millions of dollars of audit out there and take back, you know, overpayment issues. And most of it centers on the lack of the proper documentation of the rationale for the drug test. Uh, for uh, how you use the drug test results. And that all relates to reimbursement, but it also relates for you physicians to your prescribing. And many of the um, examples of cases that are being indicted now or investigated uh, for audit or licensing board prosecution are tying together the controlled substance prescribing component with a healthcare fraud allegation where there's laboratory being billed. And that is a very dangerous position to be in if, if somebody becomes a subject of one of those investigations because it opens the can of worms on your finances with your laboratory, but also with your prescribing. And that can just be a nightmare headache for you. We're going to look at uh, some future developments. These are the main objectives is basically um, common knowledge that can help you um, you know, really figure out where there are traps for financial and legal liability. We're going to look at the elements of medical necessity. Sue's going to spend quite a bit of time on that. And we're going to help you with locating some of your policies. Most of you are fairly good at that. And uh, if you have to leave for any reason, understandable, we'll be covering some of the location of your um, policies in the lecture on overdose this afternoon and also Game of Groans tomorrow when we go through some real good case studies. So we do have some course tools that are built into this lecture. Uh, we have one that's a checklist for um, medical necessity documentation. This is an, a slightly updated slide deck from the deck that's been uploaded already. This deck will get up graphics in it. Uh, we have a sample summary of a payer medical policy and a sample template for uh, documenting your rationale. I'm going to stick this right here in the middle and hope that that's better. All right. It fools with my hearing. I'm a little hard of hearing, and so when it goes out, it probably annoys me more than it annoys you, hopefully. Um, so we're going to look at the litigation landscape at this point in time. Remember, these cases are pending cases, which means nobody's been proven guilty. So don't say that Jennifer said these guys were guilty, and don't say that Jennifer said these guys did this, because that hasn't been proven yet. So these are from public documents, and that's where we're going to start. So the first case is a, is a criminal case example, and interestingly, the physician was not involved in this case to the knowledge of those prosecuting it. You had a sales representative from a, an independent clinical laboratory, and you had a staff person from the physician's office. And what was happening was essentially the diversion of samples so that the samples would get processed by the lab, and then the, the representative would get that credit and then split some of the money that was coming to them, to the, the person inside. So the indictment looks like this. This is a, a public document. This is filed in the Southern District of Texas. Uh, it's against two individuals. It was originally sealed, but it is an unsealed indictment now. And this comes right off the uh, court uh, documentation filing system that they have in federal court. So you have two people here, uh, Mr. Solis, uh, who was employed as a lab tech for the physician. And then you also have uh, Mr. Cantu, who was an account representative for the particular lab. Do you want to switch me out? Thank you. Excuse me one minute. 
We're good. Okay, so those are the two uh, defendants in this particular case, and um, they're rep one of them was representing a laboratory. So here is what's called the manner and means, and if you look at the left side of the screen, those allegations are right out of the indictment, and what I did was blow them up so that you could see them on the right-hand side. So there were some fraudulent documents involved, repeated requests for testing without um, physician approval, and lacking medical necessity. And I want to stop right there on that particular point. One of the things that Sue and I always see when we are uh, dealing with audits, it doesn't matter if it's an independent lab or a physician office lab, we see the argument about getting the physician's signature. We don't have to get it. Medicare said we don't have to. Well, not having to and should you do it for purposes of having a complete submission of a claim, uh, so when a payer evaluates it, those are two different things. And in this situation, because they didn't have that sort of an enforcement, it was an easy loophole for this lab representative to step through and start taking these uh, steps to divert some of this money and, and make their own money, as it's alleged in the scheme. So. When a laboratory comes to you, physicians, and asks for signatures, if they have an electronic medical record system, there's a way to set that up so that your signature can be appropriately used, but you still have to be an authorized provider for ordering the test, and Sue so will go into more detail about that in a minute. Um, but you want to be careful if it's your own lab and not having those authorized orders on file where you can see the paper trail all the way through. And again, there's different ways to handle it so that the physician doesn't have to be bothered every single time with the signing of the document, but you want to be tuned into that because somebody that's willing to forego that and not talk about medical necessity could be setting up something that could lead, you to, tr lead to trouble inside your shop, and you really don't want that. Forging patient signatures. A lot of people think that um, you know, the signature is not there from the patient. They'll just go ahead and sign it. We see these in drug treatment facilities all the time. They'll just sign that the staff is not medically oriented. Um, they'll sign it on behalf of the physician, sign it on behalf of the patient, and then that goes on to the laboratory. That's really a problem when it comes to payment and really a problem um, that can crop up down the road when the, the patient starts to complain about a laboratory bill, whether it's against the physician office lab or the independent lab is of no matter. The patient makes the complaint and things can unravel from there. You want the patient to give consent for the testing. You want the patient involved in that process because you physicians are the ones that need to make sure that you've done the right thing for your patient and you don't want them playing games with you because you're probably prescribing to them if you're drug testing them. And the independent lab doesn't want anybody messing with those signatures because if they're the ones ultimately billing for the testing, that could impact payment. And so incomplete orders, incomplete things like that create problems. And this particular case illustrates a lot of the problems, and that's why we put it out here. So they misappropriated the point-of-care drug testing and sent it to the outside lab. Uh, the lab representative collected uh, 1099 commissions and payments based on these fraudulent requests. And um, what happened is essentially that the lab representative caused the laboratory to submit the false claims. And chances are not everybody in the lab was aware of it. Probably very few people were, were aware of it. We don't know yet until they go through the rest of the facts. So patient records were altered. You all aren't going to do that. But there are people who are willing to compromise their ethics 
and do this in your backyard. And one of the things you want to do if you own a medical practice is you want to do your own due diligence on every lab that comes to you before you make a decision to use them, all right? Uh, and you're going to end up using, in many cases, multiple labs, but you want to set the tone of what you require in your practice and be careful when they start to lead you through things. Make sure that it sounds right and make sure that it, it accords with what you know to be payer policies and medical necessity, the ethics, and your licensing board. You have a right to ask those questions and you have a right to have that information presented to you before you ever make a decision about using any outside lab. And the same thing should happen when you are looking at doing your own laboratory. Sometimes people are set up in their own laboratory situation and they get led astray because the individuals and the companies that set them up, some of them aren't trained in the billing and coding and in legal liability areas and some of them have some background on that. You just want to be sure that the people are setting you up the right way. You use whoever you want to, but you really want to make sure that you are being set up with the right kind of test menu, the right kind of test codes, the right kind of interplay between presumptive and definitive testing, the right kind of paperwork. And that's, that's really what this stuff is about. So these are the charges here, and you'll see that um, in this situation, the prosecutor lumped them all together and said, on this date, um, you build this much money or cause this much money to be uh, billed to uh, Medicare and then paid back to the lab, and this wasn't medically necessary. The physician didn't authorize it, and the patient consent was for, uh, forged. So the lab bills here going in were $4,220, way, way, way out of line. All right? You all know that, right? Bills that are over $1,000 in many cases these days are way, way, way out of line. And so you, that's something on pricing, and that's a different topic and a different lecture. But that's what you can see through here. Another case example, in this situation, we've got nurse practitioners indicted. This is in my backyard where I live. Um, you have uh, laboratory sales and marketing companies implicated. You have representatives that were working for those marketing companies. You have pain clinic owners and people that had interest in labs. And so you have a mixture of the prescribing component with the drug testing component and kickbacks. And this one is under a second superseding indictment, which essentially means the government is expanding the story that it's telling, and the government is ultimately going to come forward and try to prove these things if the case goes to trial. So here's the header of it, and again, a publicly filed document. Several people indicted in this particular thing. Um, the pain clinics uh, that were involved were in Knoxville. And some of these folks had um, ownership interest in them, as I've already stated. And I'm, I'm not going to read those paragraphs. I'm just showing you. Uh, and I'm going to show you a picture because I kind of translated it to a graphic. And this is what uh, part of the indictment uh, graphic kickback scheme, scheme looks like. And these are the entities that are named in the indictment. So the clinic was sending referrals for Medicare and Medicaid patients uh, to this outside lab uh, confirmatrix. And uh, then Confirmatrix had payments that were going to a shell marketing company set up called Integrated. And then the money was being paid out to uh, two of the people listed in the indictment, Tipton and Alvarez. And it ends up that uh, Tipton also owned uh, a lab, a different independent lab, and, and got the self-referral or self-pay people referrals from this. So this is part of how 
um, the kickback scheme worked. And then the other half of it was this, was a different laboratory with different clinics. This one's Sterling Laboratories, where they had a, an interim or shell company uh, set up to receive what is alleged to be the kickbacks. And then you had the payments going out again to Tipton and Alvarez, and you had another lab involved getting uh, the self-pay referrals. So um, this one's really uh, an allegation of a lot of bad things going on with monies being paid back to people that have ownership interest in the clinics. Um, and so you really have to know who you're dealing with and to be very careful of it. I'm not going to spend any more time on this other than that, but I want you to know that the government is looking at business relationships in the drug testing arena as it impacts pain and as it impacts um, addiction or substance use disorder treatment. And we've known that for quite some time, but the allegations are really tracking the money and then tracking the, the reasoning. How would you know that there were kickbacks involved? How would you know that this was an inappropriate business relationship? The government's going to look for things to show that. They always follow the money, but they also then look at the medical necessity of the testing, where your referrals are going, uh, how often you're doing the testing, uh, how well you use the test results. And that's what the rest of this course is going to be about. So um, lots more information. If you're interested in reading these things, I can email them to you, or you can get them off of the internet. Now we have some common audit themes. I'm going to let Sue pick up and talk from here. Good and morning. I'll click the thing. So these are some of the themes that we see. This is Sue, y'all. Sue is a certified professional coder and certified healthcare auditor. And so she has lots of credentials. She does medical practice billing and also uh, works in the laboratory billing side. And, and that's how we originally met up. Um, I do laboratory coding and compliance. She does laboratory billing. And we overlap in a lot of areas. And that's how we ended up getting together. So Sue, why don't you take care of some of the themes and just let me know when we need to change the slides. OK. Oh, that's blinding. But don't, that's why you have to go look like <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, Good morning, everyone. I've been a certified professional coder for over 20 years and a certified healthcare auditor for uh, approximately 10 years. And the payer audits are becoming more prevalent in the laboratory industry, and that's why we wanted to uh, include that in today's presentation. Um, there are, when, when a payer does either a prepayment audit or a postpayment audit, it does cover a substantial amount of claims, and they can go back and retroactively look at claims they've either paid or denied in the past and include that in their audit. Um, they will have their special investigation unit uh, assigned to your NPI or your tax ID, and it gets flagged in their system. Of course, with a prepayment review, they pretty much stop paying you altogether until they complete their review. What years are you seeing in the, in the uh, take backs and audit action? How far back does it go? Oh, it can go back to eight years, six years, eight years. Uh, if, they, if they make a determination that you have not met the requirements of their audit guidelines and they are reviewing, let's say, maybe one year's worth of data, they can then go and apply that universally and go back six to eight years. So it reaches so, back a long way. Yes, it can go back a long way. Uh, it requires the production of patient medical records and treatment notes. Um, that is probably 
the primary area that gets most providers on uh, the audit target uh, board because if they ask for a medical record here and there, you think nothing of it and you send it in. And when they make a determination that your medical necessity that's built within your documentation does not support um, and does not correlate from the HPI down to your medical decision making, and if you've done a presumptive test in your office, how are you using that to make a determination in your medical decision making and your clinical treatment for the patient? They want it to be individualized. They can certainly uh, identify that in the note, and that could open up the possibility of them now doing a, a broader audit on you. Uh, it could turn into a, a medical practice or treatment facility audit on top of the laboratory services uh, audit because if you are an independent clinical laboratory and you depend on the medical necessity from another entity, whether it be a uh, physician office laboratory or a treatment facility, Unfortunately, the onus is placed on the independent clinical laboratory to produce and provide those records to the payer. That not only helps to support their medical necessity or lack thereof, but it also uh, opens the facility, the other entity, up to an audit based on the documentation or lack thereof. Because now they have another NPI, they have another tax ID, they have another provider, and that could then open the doors for them to come directly to you. Uh, examining other issues such as collection of copays and deductibles, prescribing fraud, patient brokering, specimen brokering, and ultimately it can result in criminal investigations. But they also look at uh, copays, deductibles, coinsurance. Are you making a good faith effort? in collecting that from the patient. Um, not necessarily if you are an in-network participating provider, you have a contract that is negotiated with those payers. You are contractually obligated to collect on what the adjudication of that claim deems as financial responsibility to the patient, and that is copay, coinsurance, and deductible. If you are an out-of-network provider, that can get a little sketchy because now you are trying to make a determination of whether you bill the patient, the copay, coinsurance, and deductible, or do you balance bill? Some payers have uh, guidelines in place that do not allow for balance billing. Balance billing is simply, I charged 1,000, you allowed 300, and you know, they paid 200, so 100 is, is the patient's responsibility. But not only are you billing the patient for the 100, but now you're going to bill them for the, for the, the difference in the, what you billed and what they allowed. So you have to really look at your contractual obligations with the payers to ensure that you're making a good faith effort to collect only what is deemed uh, financial responsibility of the patient, and that would be copay, coinsurance, and deductible. And waiving of those could appear as inducement, and it could lead to uh, you know further investigation. Because if a payer says, hmm, if a provider doesn't need the patient's copay, coinsurance, or deductible, then we need to reduce our contracted fee schedule, especially if you're in an in-network contract with the payer. If they see that you're not doing your 
obligation in collecting that from the patient, they will reduce their percentage in which they contracted on your fee schedule. And it gets much worse than this. We see a lot of this stuff in audit, and we hear often from one side or the other of the laboratory, POL or independent, that um, sometimes the physician has actually asked the laboratory um, whether they're going to make an effort to collect copays and deductibles, and they will say, well, if you, if you are going to do that, then you're not going to get my business. And I, we've, I've actually heard a physician say that, and that's very scary because that can open the door to the person saying it to um, a knowledge or a solicitation of some sort of inducement what are you going to do for me so that you can be my testing laboratories, what it sounds like to an auditor or an investigator. And there's a lot more to it than just that, but you've got to be very careful about what you say and what you ask for. Of course, nobody wants to have patients worrying about financial issues, but the reality is uh, you're a for-profit visit uh, um, business and um, the independent laboratory is a, a, a for-profit business, and you've got to be careful about asking that the laboratory uh, forego uh, the collection of these things. And, of course, there's contractual problems that can come uh, from it as well, as Sue hinted at, uh, with your own network uh, situation. You want to be very, very careful about what you do and what you don't do, so understanding your position is really critical. And I think we've seen these things in um, all of the audits that we face right now, uh, and they are going back a long ways. And I, I want to say something about paperwork here, because this is a hard topic to take up in the morning. It gets a little technical. And sometimes it's hard to ferret out the application of this to the physician office when we start talking about the relationship with the independent lab. Here's the application. The documentation of medical necessity that relates to your drug testing does double duty, does double duty to protect your license, okay? Your license to practice medicine, your license to prescribe controlled medications, so your registration, it protects those things because the real essence of what you have to document here is your rationale for doing or not doing something. And so that's your clinical decision making. And so your rationale for ordering a drug test is gonna be tied to the patient's risk level, right? What do you know about them from the beginning? Where are they today in your program? what kind of drugs they are on, what kind of doses they are on, what's their history been with the drug testing results. And you're going to say, it's time for me to order this test, and we're going to test for these drugs, and then we're going to use the results and decide what we're going to do from here. And so um, let's take the example of a patient that has uh, done some self-escalation of um, using the medicine that you're prescribing and they now show up and they want an early refill, uh, you've got a couple of problems on your hands. Let's focus in on the drug testing and how that can support on the prescribing side. So you could order the drug test, and let's say that the, the drug that you're prescribing is oxycodone, and you can do a screen and you can sort of see that the oxycodone is somewhat there in their system, but you can't see the whole picture. You can't see the metabolites, and, you, and that may be important information to you because it may reveal that this person is not getting the right pain relief from this particular medicine. It can reveal a lot of other things. So you're going to order the test for a definitive test of 
the oxycodone, and you want to look at the different metabolites. You need to find a way to say that, whether you have your own lab or not, all right? Because you want to make a decision about prescribing that also follows with this patient. So you have to look both directions when you're talking about your drug test rationale for doing it. So now we send the test on and we get the laboratory results and you see that um, there is a uh, high amount of the parent drug and a low amount of the metabolite, the major metabolite, all right, which is oxymorphone, right? And then you see some of the noroxycodone in there. What does that tell you? What are you going to do with that information if you see that? That's what needs to be written down and supports your decision to prescribe as well as supports the decision regarding the utility of the drug test, if you're being reimbursed for that or if you're sending it to an outside lab. It doesn't really matter. The medical necessity has to be there because you're the one ordering the test. And if it's the outside lab, you know, processing the testing for you, they, have, they need to make sure that there's medical necessity before they send those claims in. And so some of the labs are changing their um, requisition forms right now to try to make a better way for you to do this efficiently and effectively, but it's still on your shoulders as the prescribing individual to make sure that you've made this clear. So that's how this stuff really relates to you, and that's why focusing on the medical necessity can help with some of these risk issues related to opioids. And I'll just say one more thing and then let Sue go on here. One of the things that we see a lot of problems with is many physician office labs are presumptive testing. They're chemistry analyzers, or they're the cups. And that's great and fine. The issue comes up when the payer doesn't see you use that information, the results of that presumptive test, uh, in the encounter with the patient that day. And, and we see the bill come in. We see the bill for the cup or the bill for the analyzer when the physician office lab submits that, the payer is expecting you to use those presumptive test results in some way, shape, or form to show what you're going to do. We know we're going to use them to go forward to the definitive test, look for the prescription drug, look for whatever else you need to look for related to the patient's history. But we also need to make sure that you're documenting your rationale for handing out a prescription that day if you did it. Right? So you run the presumptive test. With a cup, you're going to get the results pretty much right away. And you can say, all right, well, oxycodone or opiates are positive, And we're not 100% sure, but we're going to go ahead and give this next prescription. And we'll have a confirmation done because we haven't had it done in a while or whatever the facts are. All right? That's great. The problem comes up when you're in an analyzer situation and the analyzer's across town in another one of the clinics that you work in and they batch everything and send those specimens over and they don't get processed till the end of the day and you don't get that result and the patient's out the door and you've made a decision based on what? But you're asking the payer to pay for that presumptive test. You see the problem? Right? It's not only a problem on the reimbursement side, it is a potential nightmare for you on the prescribing side. So these are other things that we think of and we try to help capture this documentation in a quick fashion and get these results and make you think about where you are with the testing in your own practice. All right. So where are we with these knowledge gaps? I changed the slide order on Sue and I put this up there for a reason. Um, what we know here, I think, is important to both physician office labs and 
uh, to independent clinical labs. Most often when the physician is, um, how many of you all do not do any presumptive testing in your practice? You send everything out to an outside lab. All right, let's start there. So when you get that specimen collected and the outside lab is going to be doing a presumptive test and then they'll do a definitive follow-up or some newer processes will send it direct to definitive and that's a whole different lecture. So you've asked the lab to do the performance of this. You're obviously not going to get the presumptive results right away. You've got to take your own cautions and how you handle that particular patient. That's fine and well and good. But we've got to look at how you're going to order your testing from um, the presumptive side to the definitive side. And most of you are going to say, I want the presumptive positives confirmed. I want to know which drug it is and which metabolites are there. I want to know either way, presumptive or positive or presumptive negative on prescription Rx drugs, right? And I want to add these test class in because I cannot, I know I can't test them with presumptive testing methodology. And that's where it really gets rough because the knowledge gap that's here is that the payers do not necessarily understand the drug classes. They don't necessarily understand which ones you can get some fairly good results regarding the presumptive test or from the presumptive test and which ones you absolutely need to go over to LCMS, a definitive test method, um, because you either can't see the full class or it doesn't test for that particular class of drugs. And that requires you to kind of understand some of the things we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but they do focus on the results not being reviewed. For definitive testing, regardless of whether you have your own lab or not. They're going to look at things like um, uh, automatically being sent. So a lot of you may have signed these custom test profiles that you established, and it says automatically do these things. The payers are really reluctant to accept those across all of your patients in a practice. They want it a little more individualized. So you have a new patient custom profile. That's the broadest test. It's usually okay to have things automatically go because you need the information. But the more established a patient is, the more that the payer wants to see information regarding why it needs to go to a definitive test. And hence, the knowledge gap comes there because the payer doesn't understand what you already know about, and that's what you're required to do by your state licensing board. So you have, if you're anybody from Indiana, all right, one of the most strict set of rules in the country that lists at least 18 reasons to do a drug test used to compel definitive testing and softened it a little bit, but it kind of lays a good roadmap out for you. This would help in the documentation of your rationale in any state. And there are other states that have uh, a lot of direction regarding drug testing, like Kentucky. And Georgia has some direction, and other ones are coming out with it. The, the payers don't necessarily know this stuff. They don't understand that weight that's on your shoulders regarding the prescribing and how it relates to the, the weight related to the financial component of it, all right, for the drug testing side. Um, the payers will come back and they will say, and again, another knowledge gap, that we're not going to let you order this definitive testing until you get a presumptive test result. And you're like, say what? I asked for a testing of an antipsychotic. We can't test those with the presumptive test methodology we have in a cup. We can't test those with the presumptive methodology we use with our chemistry analyzer. 
and the lab doesn't have it set up that way, so we can't do it. We have to go to LCMS. And the payer is learning to try to understand which of those classes don't have an attachment to presumptive methodology, but that stuff changes all the time. So what you want to be able to do is worry about your end of it, and your end of it is, I need the antipsychotics tested for this reason. All right, and there's a lot of people that take antipsychotics, some of it on label, some of it off label. And so that's what they're looking for in that, but the knowledge gap is really, really there. And then um, medically unnecessary testing of other definitive drug classes. So, you know, you all have 80-year-old people that are Medicare folks, and they're on long-term opioid therapy, and you've had them in your practice for quite some time. Do you really need to be testing them for PCP every time you test? What do you think? No? A lot of people think, well, it's easy to add it in there, no big deal on the presumptive side. True. No big deal on the presumptive side because you're not paid per drug class. It's all lumped together in one reimbursement amount. But it is a big deal on the definitive side because it adds up, and we'll see that in a minute. It actually increases the amount of reimbursement for the claim. Uh, and, and, and then you might be giving up a chip that you really need for a, a drug class that makes more sense, like fentanyl, okay, or uh, tramadol or something else, uh, one of the skeletal muscle relaxants. You want to look at a broad group of them, but you've been ordering PCP and synthetic cannabinoids and K2 spice and bath salts and blah, blah, blah. Certainly there are patients that you will at times need that for, but you have to understand that individualization is a key part of what the payers are looking for in medical necessity, and you have to make it your goal to make your drug test orders to make sense. And so um, if your lab is not cultivating that and throwing out instead, well, you can test for all of these drugs and look at all of this and blah, 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 you need to think that the more drug classes added up, potentially the more expensive that is, and do you really need it for the 80-year-old lady that you have a pedigree on of never having touched anything illegal in her life? Could she possibly go out somewhere in the United States of America and find PCP and use it? Of course she could. Is that realistic? Probably not, because if, it, if, if she could, and that's what you were really thinking about this person, you probably wouldn't put the opioids in her hand, right? So you got to use common sense. That's a pretty far out example, but that's where we are regarding that. So the payers have a lot of knowledge issues there. They also have um, there's some knowledge gaps with regard to business arrangements. Um, a lot of the popular right now to do is to send your specimens through some rural hospitals or some sort of a hospital arrangement that uh, the hospital has with a lab. Anybody hear about that one yet? Y'all heard about it? Yeah, they come to you and they get you referring to this and you, sometimes you think the hospital lab is doing the testing and actually it's another lab doing the testing. They've got these arrangements and there's some lawsuits going on regarding these arrangements. They're civil lawsuits with breach of contract being alleged against the hospital and fraud being alleged against the hospital and the independent clinical laboratory. So be careful when you, you get those magical beans of send them here and it'll all work out great for you. But that's one of the knowledge gaps that the payers have. They're just starting to learn about that particular business arrangement. The 1099 sales teams is a knowledge gap mostly for uh, the physician's office, a physician. Um, a lot of times these folks that are coming into you marketing are 1099 salespeople, okay? They're not W-2 employees of the lab. They're brokering your specimens to the highest bidder. 
whoever's going to pay them the most. That presents a problem under federal law, but it also presents a significant problem under state law. And um, as a result of that, you want to be very careful, because I know that there are people that go around as uh, brokers that are actually setting up laboratories. And, and what you don't know is on the back end, they're getting payments from the independent lab that they've said, well, we work with this independent lab. And so you're going to send your specimens over there, and they're getting a payment from you on the front side from the laboratory and a payment from you on the back side as a commission for every specimen you send in. Where's the incentive? Where's the incentive to set it up the right way for you all if money is involved? You get that? Well, patient brokering and, and that sort of thing is really a problem, and it can whack the provider as much as it can wrap, whack the sales rep and the companies. Physician investments, physician office labs, we've kind of already covered all of that. So um, there are a ton of knowledge gaps on drugs and definitive drug classes. Um, and so what you need to know are these essentials, that the American Medical Association uh, current procedural terminology, the CPT, sets out the definitive drug class descriptors, okay? I'm going to show you a picture of it in a minute. And Medicare has adopted that, so they're following the same drug class descriptors. And in your own laboratory, if you have your physician office lab, and you're especially, how many are doing LCMS at the physician office level? Anybody in the room? Okay. All right, so when you have your own LCMS at the physician office lab level, you want to make sure that everything that you do is set up according to these drug classes so that when an auditor picks up an order form from the physician office, they can tell you understand the drug classes. When they see the test results, they can tell you understand the drug classes, and they can read it and check it off in accordance with what they get as their handbook uh, to do their audits, all right? So they're going to be looking at these descriptors, and if your stuff is all over the place and not consistent with it, because some lab wants to call uh, gabapentin an anti-epileptic, and somebody else wants to call it an anti-convulsant, and somebody else listed it in a weirdo place, that's a problem, because it's hard for the auditor to figure it out. You want the auditor to understand that you know what you're doing, okay? And the best way to communicate it is to understand this internal process. Um, and so we're going to look also at the impact of the definitive descriptors and the test order challenges. So here's the picture of the drug classes as they exist defined by the CPT and adopted by Medicare. And there are some classes in there that we don't see a lot of testing for uh, in uh, pain management or uh, substance use disorder treatment. Like you might see a little more of it in uh, treatment with anabolic steroids. But you got analgesics, non-opioid, and those two things are normally tossed out. You don't see a lot of that. Um, but these are the classes. And what I did, and I'll show you in just a minute, is I did a breakdown and, and to tell you why this is so hard to get the drug class knowledge gap, gap and how it relates to your ordering clothes. There's a big gap. And the payers don't understand your need for ordering certain drug classes. And if you can grasp that and articulate it, it will help you if you're ever in an audit, whether you're getting reimbursed or not. They don't understand how these drug classes relate together and how as pain practitioners, you're kind of compelled to look at all the opioids that are out there, at least the ones that are commonly abused, right? Well, when you count them up, as you'll see in a minute, it ends up being pretty significant. So before we get to the counting up, this is what it looks like for reimbursement on definitive testing with LCMS by drug classes. One to seven, 
8 to 14, 15 to 21, 22 or more. For your new patients, most of your medical necessities pretty good around um, the, the third level, maybe tier two, depending upon you know, the type of practice that you have. But labs that are going with the high end of that and testing for all these weirdo drugs, you better have some evidence that that's going on in your area. And one of the things the payers look at um, are positivity rates. I learned that from one of my other partners, that they will look at the positivity rates on the instrument from, from the laboratory, whether it's yours or the independent laboratory, for the testing in your practice. And if they see lots of zeros, it never showed up basalts. It's never showed up in the creation of 30,000 specimens, K2 spice or PCP, then they're going to wonder why you're doing that, and it usually comes back to it stacks it high on the claim for reimbursement. And that may not be going into your pocket, but it could be going into somebody else's pocket, and you want to make sure you're signaling your intent to do the right thing. So here's where the problem is. If we look at, right now the problem's in the clicker. Here we go. Um, so we look at the kind of breakdown, and these are just general breakdowns of those classes that you saw on that earlier slide. Your opioids, opiates, and descriptor-related classes, there's nine of them, okay? So normally it should have been broken into four groups. Opiates, natural, semi-synthetic, synthetic, and then the weirdo group with agonist, antagonist, and something else that sort of relates to the use of opioids, but not really, but in four classes. But there's nine. And so you have to go through and say, I need to have these nine. And the only one that you might conceivably, the ones that you could conceivably pull out would be propoxyphene and tepentadol. Okay, we don't see a lot of abuse of tepentadol, at least in the data from labs. And propoxyphene hasn't been on the street in a long, long time. And the positivity rates for it are very low. There may be some interference potential there, but basically you've got zero rates. So you've got seven of them. And where did seven of them put you on the chart? It puts you at the very high part of tier one, step one, on our uh, stair step thing. Enrique, what am I doing wrong? Oh, there it is. It's just slow in the advancing. Okay. Um, so it puts you on stair step one over there in the bottom left. And now you can't just do only the opioids. You've got to go and look at the... Um, rest of these things. You may have alcohol and a reason for testing it. You may have patients on antidepressants and you need to look at that as well. You may have somebody that's on a benzodiazepine and certainly you need to look at that kind of stuff. They may have a history of smoking marijuana, whatever it is. All of a sudden you're in tier two and you could get to tier three depending on what the individual uh, issues are with the patient. And you have to be able to explain those if you're getting reimbursed for that. Um, you know, in your lab. And so this is really changing right now in the payer population. They are starting, the carriers are writing new policies. They're starting to understand this more. And that's really a good thing for you all because it actually will give you a better roadmap to what's happening. But it's going to take a while for everybody to get there. But so do you all have a feel for what I'm talking about now? How you, you guys look at drug, the ordering of drugs for testing more like this slide right here, right? You need to know these groups. And the American Medical Association created that big list of drug classes, and they individualized drugs that probably should have been put into a class, like semi-synthetics or synthetics. But they didn't do that. They gave these drugs 
these individual codes, and as a result, it's a chip that gets counted when you're talking about the definitive class tiers. And so it complicates the issue of medical necessity, and it's because of that knowledge gap. And we're hoping that this thing will, you know, will go to close. Um, and because if you're going to test like fentanyl, fentanyl has its own code in this definitive drug class descriptor thing. If you're testing fentanyl, you're probably looking for other synthetics, right? You're probably going to look for methadone. You're probably going to look for some other pure synthetics that are out there. And so they're, the lab could only bill one unit if there was a synthetic group that included all of those, if that's how they had it listed. But they don't. They give fentanyl its own. They give methadone its own code. And so you're not going to test them that way, and that's why this doesn't really make sense from a let's get the act together so everybody can follow the same recipe, uh, if you will, to get it right. So hopefully the awareness that uh, folks like Sue and I make when we talk with these people in audits and the attorneys that we work with, hopefully some of these discussions will help them realign these things uh, down the road. All right, now this is Sue time to talk. Medical necessity and reasonableness for the payer policies require documentation, lab, and physician. Um, as Jen has mentioned several times, they are, you know, well, let me step back a little bit. You have to understand when you speak of a payer doing an audit that uh, they may have someone performing an audit that is not all too familiar with laboratories, okay? So we unfortunately feel the pain of that on your end because they come back and they may send you a request for records and the medical records that they're asking for don't necessarily, um, you know, they don't support the type of services that you provide. So a lot of times the auditors at the payers are looking for this nice little package wrapped in a bow and there's a progress note there is medical necessity, you know, for the presumptive testing. There is medical necessity and documentation to support uh, the, the clinical treatment plan for the patient and then carrying that over to definitive testing and how everything kind of correlates together. You really throw them off when you throw in the laboratory report from a lab that, uh, you know, that they don't even, they've never heard of. Um, now they are associating that with you. They, they just don't understand the documentation that they're asking for. So it is different from that of a laboratory versus a physician office because in the physician office setting, you can present a progress note for a data service. You can present uh, a, a result of presumptive testing for the same date of service. You can present an order that goes over to the reference laboratory that still has the same date of service, and then the lab report that you, uh, you obtained from the laboratory, from the reference laboratory, has the same date of service. So that's a nice little package. Everything you know, correlates to the same date of service. But when you're a laboratory and you're running something on a data service, uh, which is the collection date, and then you're having to obtain records from a non-physician facility, addiction facility, you know, something uh, that really doesn't have a progress note per data service, that's where the confusion comes from. So you have to understand who's auditing your records, and you never want to give them too much or too little. 
the clinical value and utilization of test results, they want to see that. Again, we talked about the correlation between the, the HPI and the clinical treatment plan, the medical decision making. It can be in here, you know, you can, you know, your cognitive assessment of that is, is, is great, but if it doesn't make its way to your documentation, then it doesn't support the medical necessity from a payer perspective. So it's very, very important to include that in your documentation. The testing frequency and individualization Patients, practice, community, Jen talked a little bit about that. There's, there's medical necessity guidelines that are associated with, with testing patients, um, you know, according to what their, um, you know, their medications are and what their social history is and what, um, you know, what their current um, history of present illness may be and their pain levels and their risk factors. You have to take all of that into consideration. But the frequency, it, there is a, a gap between what your licensing board may state and what the payer policy may support. And an example of that is Aetna. Aetna only allows eight presumptive and eight definitive tests per member per calendar year. Your licensing board may, may have something completely different. Unfortunately, once you've met that eight, there's no more reimbursement. So at that point, you have to determine what's the best course of treatment for this patient, especially if you know you're not going to get paid for it. Medical necessity, what is it? The AMA defines medical necessity as those services that are reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis or treatment of an illness or injury or to improve the functioning of a malformed body member. The AMA further defines medical necessity as healthcare services or products that a prudent physician would provide to a patient for the purpose of preventing, diagnosing, or treating an illness, injury, or disease, and or its symptoms in a manner that is in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice, clinically appropriate in terms of type, frequency, extent, site, and duration, and not primarily the convenience of a patient physician, or other healthcare provider. So this is AMA's definition of medical necessity. As we continue to go through this presentation, you're going to see medical necessity is def can be defined a little differently, and it can vary from a payer perspective. So this is the definition from AMA, but when you get into Cigna and Aetna and United Healthcare, you'll see that that, that will have a slight variation to it. Uh, here is Cigna. So it, it, it's somewhat similar, but they have their guidelines and their payer policies built into what they consider to be uh, medical necessity. So, for example, Cigna has a guideline that they don't care how many classes you test beyond 14, you could reach the, the level 3 or 4 which is the GO482 and 83, and it could be supported uh, in your documentation for medical necessity, but Cigna has a payer policy in place that they will only reimburse up to tier two. So if, if you're billing a GO481, that is the highest level that Cigna will pay for. 
But if you're testing a GO482 or 83, they're going to downcode it to a GO481 because it meets their criteria and their definition of medical necessity and their frequency limits. And it's really important to know that and get somebody in your practice. If you have your own laboratory and you're considering maybe putting LCMS in, you don't want to, to pay for things that you don't or cannot use. And so your test menu selection is super important, whether it's analyzer or LCMS, and you want the two things to coordinate together. So somebody needs to be understanding this in the practice and thinking about it and making sure that they can um, you know, advocate for you as you go and interact with companies that are trying to set these things up and maybe don't know all of this stuff. So it's really important that you do that. Uh, Jen and I created what we call fast fact sheets, and it's per payer that has a policy that defines what their medical necessity is, defines what their coverage limits are, their frequency limitations. Um, we've added, um, you know, a, the, the coverage limits that are in here, the core documentation that is required uh, to support medical necessity, and not only that, but a quick checklist. So it can assist you in, um, you know, taking a 15 to 30 page document of medical necessity from a, a payer, and in this case it's AmeriHealth, and we have simplified it to one page or a couple of pages. Um, but we also give you a checklist for that particular payer. Does this meet medical necessity? And if you've checked everything off of that list, then you should be good. But every payer in, in you know, AmeriHealth is a, another one where they have frequency limitations. And they have specific medical, uh, medical necessity criteria that has to be met for their particular patients. Um, There's a question. Yeah. Oh, yes? Well, it all counts against the frequency, but what you guys are doing and you know you need to do is state why you're going and adding an additional test in and make it clear in your note. And then there's always going to be a battle with certain payers because, you know, they, you know, if, if there's a way to go after a, a payer and pierce the ERISA veil that usually protects them, it's by them cultivating substandard care through a policy that they have. And there are many people that are looking at those type of lawsuits, and there are a couple that are in existence right now where we're examining what's the payer policy? How does it relate with the standard of care set not only by the licensing board component of standard of care, but also the community of pain management and what a reasonably prudent practitioner would do in the same or similar circumstances? That's the legal standard. And the reasonably prudent practitioner would do exactly what you just said. You would reach out and reorder that test. It was an aberration. You know, you trust the, the, the science behind it, but let's figure it out with this patient because I'm the one writing her opioids or deciding whether to write opioids. And so you have to do that for that reason, and you need to make that very clear because if 
the payer were to say, we're not paying for it, that's one kind of battle, but you want to be able to throw back the other punches. Not only are you not paying for me for the service that was appropriate, but you're trying to cause me to do something with these limitations that I'm going to have everybody else on my back if I try to follow your numbers. So there's a huge tension right there. And I, you know, we advocate that on behalf of our clients, and we're starting to make some headway and make these lawyers for these uh, payers understand that they have some significant exposure potential here if they don't get this right. So that's at the independent side as well as the physician office lab side. So it's a great question uh, and it's a big challenge and that's how I would suggest that you start looking at it. Document your reasoning for it. Go ahead. And you can do that. So what he said is that he's working with two large laboratories and they will go direct to definitive, essentially, and, and skip over the presumptive test. There's still a knowledge gap there because the payers think there needs to be a presumptive test before you do the definitive. Some will hassle, some will not hassle. And, you know, it, a lot of that depends on where the laboratory status. Nothing wrong with that order, but it's not going to work for everybody everywhere. So it's not something that... I would sit there and say, yeah, this is cool, go ahead and do it. I think we're coming that way. I think that's where lab is headed. It makes a lot of sense. But there's still, you know, expense issues there and science issues and availability issues. What's available to the independent lab may not be available to the physician office lab, uh, and, you know, financially and just, you know, logistically. Right, yeah, there's some financial sale to it. Right, but let me tell you where you're exposed. If you're sending it out, your prescriptions that you're writing until you get those results is where your exposure is. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And they die in between then and when you get the result. And I've got cases going to trial on that right now. So they don't understand that. I'm not challenging what you're saying. I'm just saying that there's imperfection in all of the system that we have, and it's the knowledge gap that we're trying to teach about. Because you know there's a knowledge gap there, you're writing the prescription, it might take a day or two to get the results. Yes, you can call the patient back, but you wanna make sure you articulate that you're doing it for this patient because they're a good risk for it in your mind. You probably wouldn't do it with a patient that had a history of using cocaine or anything like that. Right, but do you understand where I'm coming from? that it's what you signal. I mean, your process, I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying that there's, from a lawyer's perspective, there's an exposure potential there. And it doesn't matter whether you're the medical director, the physician owner of the practice, it really doesn't matter because the licensing boards are starting to look more broadly at responsibility relating to these opioids. And so they can tag when there's that little bit of gap in time and you haven't documented thought processes toward the control of a patient that maybe only needs seven-day prescription for opioids instead of 30 days and call back. You see the difference? Yeah. So that's where we're going with that. But it's a great point. Go ahead with the checklist. Okay. Uh, reviewing carrier policies, those are deeply embedded in the payers' websites. They do not want you to have access to their policies because then you can appeal based on the criteria that they have provided. 
So if in the event you are unable to find a payer policy on their website, you can contact the payer and have them walk you through step by step. Aetna is notorious for this. When they created the frequency limit policy, they really didn't start um, uh, you know, making it active until 2016, but the policy itself was created in 2014. And initially it was just a one line sentence deeply embedded in their website. And now everybody's getting recoupment requests from Aetna because they've been paying all of these uh, laboratory tests because they didn't have the proper front end edits in their system, but now you're being held responsible for going back to 2014 and paying those recoupments. So it's not fair, but a lot of times they don't want you to have these guidelines, so you really have to dig deep and contact the payers if necessary. CMS documentation guidelines, they're very straightforward. CMS is, is you know, they, they have in all of their LCDs, depending on what area that you're in, you'll have a different uh, Medicare Administrative MAC. Um, and all of the LCDs does have a specific uh, section that does provide documentation guidelines. It'll give you all of the requirements for meeting medical necessity, and then it will give you the documentation guidelines, it will give you the CPT or the HCPCS codes that are associated with the LCD, and then it will give you a list of medically necessary diagnosis codes. And those diagnosis codes need to be associated with your, uh, with your testing protocol. If you are a physician office laboratory, make sure your laboratory codes are added to your in-network fee schedule. This is something that you know, when, when a, a physician office laboratory makes the transition from testing on cup to going to an analyzer, you need to upgrade your CLIA license from a CLIA waiver to now you are high complexity, that has to be in place. And not only that, but you may have had the, uh, you know, the 80305 code as a part, as your negotiated contracted fee schedule, but now you're introducing an analyzer which changes your CPT code to 80307, so you need to ensure that that code is now included in your contracted fee schedule. You have to make sure that the payer that you do have contracted um, uh, fee schedules for, that it does allow for um, the in-office analyzer testing. Jen mentioned earlier, you have a, a multi-group, um, a, a multi-location group, and you have the analyzer which is housed in one location. That can be tricky from a billing perspective because you have to uh, indicate on your CMS 1500 claim form where the physical location of that service was provided. So you could have your E&M, an office visit, in location A, but your analyzer is in location C, and now you have to split your claim. So you have your E&M going out and any, any additional ancillary services that may have been provided in location A, box 32 on the CMS 1500 should reflect that physical address. And if you have an analyzer in location C, then that claim goes out with an 80307 with the pertinent linking to the, the medically necessary diagnosis code. But box 32 on that claim should reflect 
the physical location of where that analyzer is housed and where that service is provided. So a lot of times physicians will get denials and it could be just simply changing some of the pertinent data that's on your CMS 1500 form. Or being proactive in doing your ROI, being proactive and making sure that these codes are already uh, contracted as part of your fee schedule from the payer. Contact your provider relations rep. I know that's a difficult process in itself because payers don't have provider relations reps like they used to. Um, but they do have a provider network um, area or department that you can contact and they should provide you upon request a copy of your contracted fee schedule. And you may have to negotiate it as a carve out. Your contract may not be up for renewal but you might be able to negotiate an 80307 for the analyzer if you're thinking about upgrading to that level. You may be able to negotiate that as a carve out of your policy until the contract is due for renegotiation. If you're using an independent cl clinical laboratory, you have a responsibility to notify your patients of your intent. Not all patients in today's um, insurance world have out-of-network benefits. And as Jen showed earlier, you saw the claims going out at $4,220. Imagine a patient who does not have out-of-network benefits, you're now sending their, their specimen to an out-of-network laboratory that they are unaware of. The out-of-network laboratory gets paid zero, and now who gets billed? The patient. Who's the first person the patient is gonna call? That's gonna be you, because they don't understand. So a lot of the back-end frustration can be eliminated if there's education on the front end of the patient. If a patient has a preference, and sometimes they do prefer that you send it to an out-of-network lab. If you're delaying the, the, the issuance of a subscription for you know, their medication, they may want you to send it to an out-of-network lab and they're willing to pay that extra fee because you get the results quicker as opposed to going to an in-network lab that their payer or their insurance plan uh, dictates that it's an exclusive in-network laboratory. But it's all about education up front. The patient, they deserve to know where their specimen is going and it's just gonna, it's gonna eliminate a lot of stress for you on the back end because they are gonna call you and they are gonna be very, very upset. It eliminates stress unless there's the problem on the back end where, you know, this comes with the activity often of the independent lab. Uh, if they don't have the right type of process set up for um, dealing with the patient and, and the billing component of it, they can't just fly three paper airplanes to your patient right. saying, please pay us this amount, and then it goes away. There has to be a real financial process and a real business sense process behind what they're doing and it can't just be designed to keep the referrals coming in and the way that the the law looks at it is well you know if a lab is doing that and it relates to you know private pay situations uh, and they think that well we're not doing anything like that regarding Medicare Medicaid um, it'll be okay no it they're gonna look at the whole ball of wax and the activity between the provider the patient and the lab doing the testing. And so it could create some 
uh, traps there if you're not familiar with you know, how the, the collection should go. And it doesn't mean they have to send the patient to collection necessary, but there needs to be a real billing process behind it. So if your patient gets one of these really wacko uh, bills, you don't just say, hey, make this go away, right? I mean, you want to say that. You want to make sure that you understand what their platform is and that you're not asking for an inducement on behalf of one of your patients. You're just simply asking for an understanding. You'll be careful in your dialogue there. And you want to do your due diligence up front. If you're thinking about using a reference lab, you want to know what their billing um, guidelines are. You want to know how much are you going to bill a patient of mine in the event of A, B, and C. What are your collection efforts? Do you send that you know, paper airplane three times and then write it off? Do you send my patients to collections? Um, do you offer financial hardship? Do you, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different layers of criteria that a patient can meet um, to assist them in that if they so choose to use this lab. But I, I think that it's in your best interest to understand the policies of your laboratory so that you can, again, help educate the patient on the front end. A lot of the major independent labs in the country have ended up under corporate integrity agreements and some of those are relating to the structure of these kind of policies because what was happening was the three paper airplanes. And that makes it almost an unfair uh, trade practice uh, against the companies that have been through that and trying to do things the right way within these boundaries. And there is no really one single roadmap for an independent lab to follow or for you to follow, but there are some hints and information out there and it starts with understanding the medical necessity and understanding some of these other issues. So, yeah, go with the last The licensing board, you know, review the professional licensing board guidelines and rules regarding opioid prescribing. Um, you know, again, we talk about the frequency limitations and just going back to what the gentleman asked about with, with Aetna, with the frequency. If you have a tainted specimen and you're not able to obtain um, a valid result, then if, the, if you have to do, like, the number nine test, and the payer denies that, you can, you can appeal that based on a medical necessity uh, perspective and explain to them, as long as it's clearly documented, the reason why. Not to say they will accept it, but you can try. <laughs> I think we've kind of covered this one. Yeah. I'm going to skip forward on yeah. that one. These are some problems that you see, you know, how many of y'all have noticed that the laboratories are starting to change up their test order forms a little bit? For you all that are ordering, yeah. You're seeing people mess around with, in a, in a good way, trying to make this easier where you don't have to write war and peace to signal what your intent is, uh, and trying to make sure you still have selection uh, and you can order the tests that you really need. You can bundle things together into a profile when it's appropriate and then unbundle in a good way, not the bad word, but uh, in, in a way that would also be appropriate. And so you're going to see a lot more forms changing around and you want to be careful of the one box, checkbox mentality uh, because that's just really not going to be good enough uh, from a medical necessity standpoint. So any lab form, you know, POL or independent, Cultivating one checkbox to make it more efficient for the ordering provider can cause problems if it's not linked in, if that checkbox isn't linked in to greater understanding on the back of the requisition form or greater understanding in some other piece of paper in the chain 
of information going along with the test order. So we are seeing a lot of that. We actually help design stuff like that uh, for different entities that we work with to try to make sure we're capturing as much as we can from these uh, medical policies to make everybody's lives easier here. Mm -hmm. um, next one. These are five things that I think you should do for minimizing the potential of audit. We've already talked about a lot of this. Uh, physician involvement. You know, remember what I said about the, the documentation doing double duty? One of the biggest problems for physicians on the prescribing side is the lack of involvement and follow-up after the first couple visits. A lot of times the patients are just handed off to the nurse practitioner or other advanced practice individual and the physician doesn't see the patient again uh, in some practices for years. That's a problem on the prescribing side because if there's a medical director, medical director, physician, that person's going to end up in hot water if there's overdose deaths. If there's issues regarding the financial component of it and this nurse practitioner has been told to follow a protocol that was set up by somebody that knew what they were doing for the physician office lab and all of a sudden it leads to too frequent testing and it's being overdone and overdone by everybody and the nurse practitioner is trying to call you know, some sort of frequency issue and overall testing issue to the physician. The physician doesn't want to hear about it because of the ownership interest in the lab is usually what happens. That ends up being a big mess when there's an audit. And it's not to say that physicians are bad like that all the time. I don't think that. I just have seen that happen in many larger practices where they might even be in multiple states and they have somebody come in to set up this testing. And you're not going to find out that there's something wrong with it until, you know, it could be a year down the road when the audit or overpayment letters start rolling in. So physician involvement and understanding is critical there. And, of course, documentation is significant. Um, this, the rest of these uh, slides here really kind of go through and tell what we think goes behind that checklist. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those. I want to make sure we have some time for questions as well. Um, but the required signatures, as we've already brought up, is super important. And find either delegate it to somebody in your practice to do it that's following a protocol and that they're an authorized provider or sign it yourself. Uh, the individualized testing, we've hit that really hard. Um, you know, you can break your patients up into categories. You can break them into new patients, high-risk patients, which may not be much different from the new patient type test. Uh, and then your low-moderate patients might have something that's more focused on the prescribing drugs as you start to eliminate, by pedigree of test results, uh, any other risk issues that come up. And then you can periodically go back to a larger uh, profile. But that's what they're looking for. Individualized to the patient's prescription individualized to what you commonly prescribe in your practice, and individualized to where, where your community drug abuse trends are. And you know, those vary across the country, and sometimes it's hard to get that information. DEA publishes some information on it. A lot of times you can talk to your local folks. Uh, back at Payne Ranch, some state legal changes. So there's been a lot of stuff updating here, as you know, from attending Pain Week last year and, and Pain Weekends this year. Uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards put out an updated model policy for the use of controlled substances to treatment opioids for chronic pain in April of this year. If you haven't seen that, 
I put that as one of the attachments to one of the lectures. I think it's going to go out to all of the lectures. You want to use that because it, even if it's not exactly the same in your state, it's still an updated guide and you want to consider both your licensing board and this. You're always going to follow your licensing board, but sometimes the Federation material can expand upon it and give you a little more of the how to do something than what your state might do. Uh, American Academy of Pain Medicine, we've been waiting on them to publish a statement on drug testing. Um, I've seen the draft. Uh, the draft doesn't say a lot in terms of roadmap, but it does talk about you know, basic issues that we've discussed in this lecture and that you'll hear in others. So pay attention to see when that comes out. Uh, individual licensing uh, state medical boards and, and some, to some degree nursing boards are putting out new materials. And they tend to follow either the CDC's uh, guidelines from 2016 or the updated agency medical director's uh, material and other related material out of the state of Washington. And that stuff has been updated last, I think, 2015, um, but they're probably going to have another version of it come out. So these things are available, I, I believe, tagged to the lectures. If not, you can email me and we'll make sure that we get them to you. Uh, ongoing CDC materials. Somebody in your office should be visiting the CDC site regularly, all right? Even if you're a pain specialist. Where are my pain specialists? All right, so even if you're a specialist, don't think that these things don't apply to you just because it says the guidelines were directed at primary care. This is like the base of the pyramid. If you can't say that you're doing the things that are in the CDC's materials, how are you going to get up the next level of the pyramid as a specialist? All right, you may have a road map that allows you to go broader in terms or, or higher in terms of the morphine equivalent daily dose because you may not have that restriction on you as a specialist, but you want to take care that you understand where the CDC is coming from and where your state board's coming from, not only in prescribing, but also in the drug testing component. Uh, and then uh, ongoing updates to FDA materials. So here's just the cover sheet to the Federation's materials from this year, and easy to get off a website. And it does talk about periodic and unannounced drug testing. Obviously, you don't want the patient to guess when they're going to be tested. And that's the challenge with testing a patient every month, right? Somebody who's high risk would be tested more frequently. If your testing pattern is to do it every month, you very potentially could be fooled. And so you've got to figure out how you're going to handle that if that's going to be your approach to high-risk patients. Then you also need to see if the standards are going to support you in that type of frequency, and they may or may not. The um, rest of the information is talking about point-of-care testing has utility. Uh, there are certain limitations with it, and they explain what those are, and they do talk about the relevance of LCMS and definitive testing. You have a physician office lab, you want to add LCMS, you're going to have to articulate these things. And though, so these are some of the resources you would use in addition to quality research from laboratories, not the ones that have been uh, at issue from a criminal perspective. Here's some documentation ideas in the pain setting. These are things that you might want to answer in your, um, your, your notes or your dictation or create a template to do that. Uh, this is in the original slide deck. Uh, you just want to make sure that you're signaling baseline test for a new patient. We need to look at a broader class of drugs. Uh, you know, this one has been evaluated with a risk assessment tool, and this is what we found on a score. We've actually created some templates to help with this. 
And so here's a case example with a new patient, no history of substance abuse, not currently, she's not currently using, or he, yeah, she, not currently using opioid therapy, but has hydrocodone in the past for dental procedures, scores low risk on the risk assessment questionnaire. You're going to document that you're going to do a baseline. You don't just write UDT today in your note, okay, uh, unless you have protocols. You don't want to just write down. This is about writing down. If you write drug test today, and that's all there is in your note, and you're putting a claim in to get reimbursed for your laboratory test, that could present a problem if you get audited. But if you go a little bit further, whether it's checklist or dictation or template, I don't care. You want to signal to whoever's going to be reviewing your notes that you're doing a baseline. You want to rule out use of unsanctioned opioids. You want to rule out use of illicit, commonly abused drugs. You're going to tell those things that are there. So these are just some ideas. You don't have to write it down exactly like that. <coughs> Excuse me. This is another example, established patient, currently on chronic opioid therapy, taking morphine, uh, 30 milligrams TID, scored low risk, but has a history of using marijuana periodically. Baseline test was six months ago uh, and appropriate. The results, last point of care presumptive test was two months ago and showed THC, which was confirmed positive. What are you going to write down about your reason for testing this person right now? What are you going to be looking for? Zeroing out the THC metabolites or whether it's still there, right? And then also, you've got to look beyond that morphine, right? You've got to look at all the drugs in that class. Why? Codeine, morphine, hydrocodone can make a presumptive positive on opiates. <clears throat> you want to also eliminate heroin use, right? A good lab will not automatically test for heroin unless you've got the codeine-morphine combination there. Um, and so, uh, you know, from a science perspective, the way that they testify when they talk, start talking about what all that means, is heroin being, does it need to be tested? Sure, it's a problem across this country. Is heroin going to be, you know, an issue if there's no codeine and morphine? What do you think? Will it be an issue on the test result? No codeine and morphine, or there's morphine only because this patient takes morphine. These are things that you need to know the answers to. And I'm not a doctor, nor am I a lab scientist, but I have seen in audits where, you know, adding in all of these drug classes has never considered the makeup or framework of what the other results are. So you need to see how the results relate to one another. And it's not that you don't test it. You're going to test for heroin, right? You need to test for heroin, but the lab may not add that in if there's no coding morphine positive. In this case, this patient's taking morphine, and so the lab is likely to go ahead and test the heroin as well from a timing perspective. Um, so uh, your documentation would look like this, and you don't have to write all that out, but this is going to give you an idea of where to go and what to write down. So that's in the slides as well. And the substance use disorder world has brand new material from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. This would apply to those that are ex-registered. It has some good information for the office-based uh, use of, of, of opioids in the treatment of addiction, uh, buprenorphine, um, specifically Suboxone. Uh, it has the information in there about frequency. And what we created was showing the papers. You can get this off the site for ACM. They have some good education. And then I created these summaries out of the document so that you can look at it and find your category or friend's category. And, 
and, and find out what they say about drug testing. And this is just more expansion of that. So I'm going to flip through these things here. And you know, let me just tell you that in the world of um, use of buprenorphine, all right, if you're doing using your X registration, um, you want to make it clear that you're using your X registration appropriately, and your testing approach is going to be a little bit differently. It's going to be more different. It's going to be more frequent up front, and then depending upon what the results are and how long the treatment is going on. Um, you're going to have some mixed up type of testing. You're going to approach it a little bit differently, and they're trying to outline that in these materials. And so it's, it's, it's a separate lecture in and of itself to go through that stuff. But I put them in there so you could see them. And I think, Sue, we're almost done as we go through that. Mm -hmm. There was just some case examples here. It's the same sort of documentation. And there's some uh, documentation ideas on the treatment side. Yes, ma'am. On the pain management side? Yeah. yeah. The, the patch, and we're thinking about almost all the patients that we test for buprenorphine on the patch. Is it still up in the patch? Are you testing it in your own lab, in your own office? Outside. Okay. It, it's a cutoff issue. And, you know, sometimes the labs have a higher cutoff. It just depends on the lab's experience with that drug. Is it at two? Is it, isn't that what they set it at, Tim? Yeah, you want to talk to the toxicologist at the lab if you haven't already. Well, I think there's some people, yeah. She said industry-wide with the labs that it's not showing up. I think that there are times and pockets where that's the case, but I do think some labs have mastered it. So rather than me continue to go on on that issue, we can talk about that after the fact. I'm not going to point you at any labs, but we've got people in the room that can answer that directly. So um, any other questions? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, it's hard to hear, so I'm walking over here. All right, so this is a really good question. When you're um, ordering your testing, do you need to list the exact substances that you want tested? There's a time that you don't have to like put it in every dictation note, but you want to make sure that your protocol that you're following in your practice is very clear as to which drug classes are being tested and why. Uh, so, you know, going direct to definitive, you want to say why for that, and, and there's a lot of reasons why you would do that. If you're going from presumptive to definitive, like benzodiazepines, one of the easy explanations is you need the benzodiazepines tested in a definitive uh, you know, methodology. So you want to use LCMS on it. Does anybody know why? What does the presumptive, presumptive testing fail to do with the benzodiazepines class? And why is it relevant to you guys? Multiple drugs hit false positive for benzos. There's another key component of that. It, it doesn't differentiate, but most importantly, most presumptive um, assays are not set up to detect the benzos that are the most highly abused. So alprazolam and diazepam. And so that test isn't doing you a lot of good. 
And that's the main reason to send it over in addition to these other things said. So you want to be able to point that out in a protocol. Uh, but you wouldn't have to name it every single time that way. But if your protocol is weak on the front end, then it becomes a problem. So it depends on how that's drafted. But you can certainly write your way around it and make it apparent and attach a copy. So we are done. And um, I'm trying to see if there's anything else. Use of document. Everything else is self-explanatory, and we've covered it. Here's the template that we created for you on your drug testing. And uh, that will be in the uploaded slide deck. The top of it basically says, uh, let me get where I can read it. The initial evaluation, you'd check that off, or is it a follow-up? And then why the definitive testing is needed and any kind of aberrant behavior. And you're going to add to this. This is just an example of what you might follow that would easily signal what your intent is and your rationale. So this is a starting point. It's not our be-all, end-all magical form but it, it's a good thing to get you to tailor it to your own practice, because that's a little hard to do uh, to a national audience. So uh, that'll be in this slide deck, and you can get a hold of that. And that's all we have. Uh, thank you for your attention and for coming, and I hope to see you all again. It's always hard to get through the first lecture, uh, but it's good to see your faces again. And thanks so much for coming out to Pain Week, because it really is the premier... Um, educational effort in the country that brings all of the frontline folks together. And it is so good to see so many of you again. So have a great time at Pain Week and let us know if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you.